Welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Svensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 1, and you'll find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast. You'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today, my panel members are Peter Lancet and Stephanie Oldfield, and I'm Alice Flanagan. Welcome, Pete and Steph. Hi. Hi. Chapter one uh, makes quite a few points. So let's start with his first premise. He starts with, what do we know and what don't we know? And so what he's, what he's starting at is we're going to look at the world and how we perceive it and is it real, is it not real? These, these questions that humanity has asked themselves for millions or centuries at least. So we start from a what do we know and what don't we know? He's saying that ideally if we're going to build a hypothesis and Steph, you probably did this at your university degree as well. If we're going to build a hypothesis, we've got to start from a starting point and ideally we could start from we don't know anything. But he's saying that we can't do that because reasonably if we do that, we're going to be explaining one unknown in terms of another because everything will be unknown. So we have to start from somewhere. So what do you think of his point of view of starting with his two givens? He's starting with his two givens of... We know that there is a world around us and we know that there is consciousness within us. They're they're the two givens that we can be reasonably sure of and put everything else under suspicion, everything else as an unknown. Over, We'll start with you, Steph. (laughs) Yeah, I I found that interesting because it wasn't until I, I read that or heard it listening to you that I actually stopped and thought about it. And it is quite true, you know, when babies are born, consciousness well, as far as we're aware, it doesn't start until they come out. And the only thing you do know is your senses and what's around you. And then it's as you grow older, you acquire knowledge from people telling you, this is it, this is it, this is it, that's not it. And that's sort of how we, we adapt and we grow and we, we shape ourselves to our own realities and environments. Um, but it is really true. And I think the, for me, the consciousness was a really interesting idea to think about it we we know that we are conscious beings we see that and and we look at that's how we differ ourselves from things like plants and stuff we have consciousness therefore we are able to determine what our world is what our reality is whereas plants or other you know inanimate objects don't um so i think starting from that point it it made a lot of sense to me but it wasn't something that i actually thought about until it was put in front of me all right, yeah, I, I think I was much the same. You know, we, we take for granted what we know. I, I learned all mm. this stuff at school and I presume that it's real. But then when you yeah. throw that all away and you start from this basic point, it's a different story. What are your thoughts, mm. Pete? Oh, I've got to think. Oh, yeah, of course. Not. All right, well, it's quite <laughs> simple for me to start by saying that I refute it all because... I do think that he's he's even making this point that the only thing we've got is um, the inner consciousness, the subjective as, uh, view of, of existence, and an objective view, that which is outside us. But we can't even prove that which is outside us. And Spensky would know this, and he's not stupid, but he has left out, for example, um, the, the Descartes re, reductio ad absurdum down to... I think, therefore, I am, cogito ego sum, um, because that's 
Descartes was asking this very question this and reduced it. If you read um, uh, the discourse on the method and you'll, you'll find that this is his question. This is the big question. And he reduced it to like, what can I actually know? And his reduction was, I can only know that I think. I only know that there are thoughts. And so the objective world can't be known at all. We can assume the objective world because we can't have a valid three-dimensional human experience without, and we're going to come to this later, without um, imposing attributes of time and spatial extension to the objective world. But we can't know that the objective world is there. So I think we can reduce what we know down to um, what Descartes said, pretty much, I think, therefore I am, is the only thing you can know. And I'm not even sure about that. We could even argue that. Um, if we're talking about a collective unconsciousness and a, a single stream of existence, one field of energy with blobs of consciousness within it, like we have um, different organs within a body, then do, do we even know that we exist as a separate entity? As an in, do we, can we even know individualization? I'm not sure that we can. Um, and we can go back even further. I mean, Socrates first posed this idea and when you know, everybody was calling, even in his day, you know, you're the cleverest thing that the world has ever seen. And he said, I don't know anything. And he meant it. Because if you read Socratic dialectic, obviously he's not talking in metaphysical terms so much in the way that we are. He's using ethical dilemmas and, and knowledge of uh, and knowledge in other ways, but um, he reduces it to like, um, oh yeah, and how do you, how do you know that? And then he by posing these questions to his followers or the people that come to him, and this is Socrates as written by Plato. I mean, we don't have writings by Socrates because he was too busy to write, but um, <laughs> or or knew, or knew better. And he knew how to delegate, though, obviously. Yeah. Well. Well. Yeah. Well. Plato was his was his best cheerleader, wasn't he? So you know. But we, so we start off with this: what can we know? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. So I, I would I would go even that step further and say we we can only if we know it at all, we can only know the subjective experience that we are we are having. I mean, that's all I think. I think we can know. Yeah, and I think I think you've got a point there. Absolutely, uh, and even Spensky acknowledges that. He said, ideally, we should come from a place of saying we know nothing. But yeah, to, and I think he's to right. start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said, but to do that, then we have no platform to start building. So we have to we have to come down to to a baseline. And so he's chosen yeah. to start with his baseline being let's just start from somewhere and. And mind you, he's not out to prove something. He's, he's as mm. it says in the introduction, it says, um, you know, uh, come reason with me. So this is a journey where he's going to build a theory, but if it doesn't stand up to, uh, if it doesn't stand up to logic in, the, in at some point, he will pull that down and re-devise mm. it. So he's starting, as you say, from a point. He's saying, let's say we know yeah. there's this consciousness in us. And we observe the world outside of us, but we don't actually yeah. say, he doesn't say we know what the world outside of us is, that there is a world outside of us. Is there? Is, 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 is there a world outside us? That's my point. Is there? We don't know that even. And he, he would have to acknowledge that. I, if, if we're going to acknowledge an unknown as a starting point, which it is, uh, it's not knowable, um, 
then we have to allow what he criticizes um, physicists and scientists for later. I, I don't mean to jump on, but I'm giving people a bit of a teaser now, a bit of a reveal. But I don't like the idea that he can then criticize science from starting from this point of, well, we're going to accept that we know X, Y, Z, and then we're going to move on our exploration of the known universe <laughs> from that point. Um, if, you, if you're going to take a given, uh, something that's, that's we, we actually cannot know, then how can we move on? See, I, I would pose the idea that we don't need to know any of this stuff. Why do we need to know it? Isn't it just a waste of time to try to discover the unknowable? I was actually going to say, I think that's something I, I actually really appreciated in, in the introduction was that, you know, he was very clear that this was just his way of thinking and that it wasn't set in stone. He's not necessarily right. And he was actually encouraging the reader to always think because not a lot of people do that. Not a lot of authors do that. A lot of philosophers very much are, here's what I think and you should think it too. And it's almost like, here's my evidence. So I actually really appreciated that it was, here's what I think is happening and I want you to actually have the discussion. And I think for me, that means that like that is a setting where you do want to think about these things. Because I mean, as humans, it is a natural instinct to sort of think about the future and you know, think about the unknown, what happens over here, what's happening over there, what's what's this? And, you know, to kind of come into that, well, how does that all work within our own little world as well as the world around us? It is a really interesting concept that even if we're not totally aware, we consider it. I think most people actually do consider it on quite a regular basis. Mm. Yeah. I like the idea, yeah. though, that to have a human experience, we have to do mm. that. We really mm. do. Otherwise, we're just going to be a blob of sludge. Um, hanging, doing nothing. But I'm I'm saying that to have a human experience, do we have to even explore the idea of what can be known and what can't be known? Mm -hmm. I know that we're going to have a collective experience, even if it's somewhat different, of the room that I'm sitting in. If you three were sitting in this room with me now, we, you, you would see the same walls as I did. If I asked you what color the wall was that I'm pointing at, and you know you can't obviously see, you'd say white, the same that I, the same that I would, uh, you know. Um, What's that thing behind me? Oh, yeah, that's um, a Himalayan salt lamp. Uh, and, you know, you, we would have enough of, enough of the similarity of the experience for us to be able to have uh, a collective experience of the world around us. If everybody's experience was so unbelievably different, then we couldn't actually have um, an experience that we're having on this planet. I, I, I just wonder whether we even need to address this problem of what we can and can't know. I think all we need to explore is what we collectively understand that allows us to actually make things and, and, and have things like the communication devices that we're using here to, to talk and record this, this podcast while we're 12,000 miles apart. Um, we couldn't have that if we were all having separate experiences is it even worth exploring what we can and can't know down to this level of detail? That's, that was, that's a question I would now pose out of this. Okay. Well, from my point of view, I think it is. Having explored what, what Aspensky has to say, I believe that I think differently now. He's not proposing to give you an answer. He's not saying he's, he's more proposing the question as, as are you. But for me, I think opening your mind is the important thing and it, that, as he says later, the opening of your mind and expanding your consciousness will give you different experiences, right, wrong or indifferent. It does give you a 
different experience of the world. And for me, I, I know that to understand something in itself, it might be of little consequence. It, it won't change the way I live. It will not change the fact that I still am interacting in a three-dimensional world. I think it's really interesting to, to at least mm. explore what else there might be. I still, it, it won't give me magical powers. It won't make me any uh, more functional in this world. But I, my curious mind says, well, really, what else is there? Am I really looking at things very narrowly? Is there something more that I could look at? So that's, that's where I found this book extremely interesting. That's the book. And we're just discussing this one point. Uh, and I, I would suggest that, you know, you to, to look at, to, to address a question from a point of view of what can we and can't we know, you have to accept that we can't know anything. Really. Yep. And Spensky acknowledges that. But yeah, so I'm said, saying, I, all, and all yeah. I'm saying, uh, and I'm not, and I'm not criticising mm. anything here. You said, but uh, the mm. fact is that we have to then accept certain givens before we can actually move on uh, and mm. do a, yeah. do further exploration. Absolutely. Otherwise, we would have no science whatsoever, would we? Mm. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. We'd have nothing. So he has given. He has he has chosen his two givens as we have consciousness. Yeah. And there is something outside of us. At this time I in the morning, I have no consciousness. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's look at uh, his next point. He says, well, okay, so if we've accepted those two things as what we know, what are we now saying we don't know? And what are the things that we had maybe previously assumed as the given and what science would tell us is, is our givens? Are we now looking at it and saying, well, we don't know this thing, you know, we don't know that atoms are real. We don't know that energy is real. You know, we're, we're putting all those things into, we're not saying they are or they aren't, we're putting them into the let's see what they really are bucket. So they're the, they're the things that we are now wanting to prove from the standpoint of our two givens. So he's, he's talking about... Um, well, he's talking about things like, uh, you know, the matter and energy, all these things that we, we say are, are real. He's saying, well, are they? He's not saying they're not. He's just saying, are they? And how do we prove that they are real? And I think the other thing that sort of came with it that was really an interesting point, I'm not sure if everybody else got the same reading as I did, <laughs> um, was that when he sort of, talks about it too he he kind of comes from this angle of it's not just a matter of saying yes it's real for me yes it's real for you therefore it's real for everybody it's saying to what extent is it the way that we've been told it is and to what extent is it adaptable in other places other contexts other perspectives other people's realities um and I think that is a really interesting point because there are things you know we we talk about he talks a lot about senses and how um, they relate to our reality and, and how that then relates to the objective world and the things we definitely, definitely know, so things like matter and atoms and, and all of those things. But not everybody sees those. Not everybody has those sensations and experiences those the same way that, say, somebody who is in a lab does. So to an extent, there's always going to be that element of unknowability within there, if that's a word. <laughs> I should know, but I don't. <laughs> we know what it like means though, don't we? We know what it means. You can get it from the context. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, what's wrong with inventing a word? I mean, what's what's different about that? I mean, it's I, I think, and so long as we all have a common experience of it and we all understand what it is, then it exists. It exists in a, in, in a sense that it allows us to utilize it and move forward and, and make things and, and assume things, which is exactly the point of what we're coming to now. So yeah, mm. when you create a word that, that didn't exist, what, what are you making it from? What are the attributes that you're mm. making it from? We assume a, a language, we, we assume a linguistic premise, we assume that we understand the, the structure of the language that you're going to drop that new created word into and that it will have a context that allows us to use it straight away. And if you hadn't mentioned, is that a word, nobody in this conversation would have doubted what you meant. Mm. So basically, you created something out of nothing, <laughs> in a way. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe you created it out of the framework. As far as energy goes, <laughs> mm. um, it's interesting now that we have science in several different, different fields, and they're all snootily looking down their noses at each other. And, mm. and we, we, we now have great divides in science that didn't exist maybe 150 years ago, certainly didn't exist uh, before um, general and special relativity were published. We now have the people who are doing cosmology work and quantum mechanics. And everybody says the word quantum now the way that they say black hole, as though these things are, are a reality and a given. They're not. Um, you watch, if you ever see film of anybody in... Um, a quantum mechanics um, lecture theatre and they've got several blackboards and they'll have a blackboard on the left full of unknowable squiggles, unknowable to most others. They'll have one on the right full of squiggles and they can prove the, the outcome of the squiggles on the board on the left and they can prove the outcome of the squiggles on the board on the right. But to have a unified theory so that the, the two things that they can, they think they can prove will make sense they need to actually fill this middle board with squiggles that join the dots there, that join the other two blackboards, and they don't. And so they invent the most fanciful drivel, like black holes. Everybody thinks a black hole is a real thing. Uh-uh, try again. It's not. Even if Hawking was still alive, he'd tell you that we only tried to fill a gap. We, we hypothesized something that we, we can't see or prove, but it feels like, it has to be that because that's the only way these two blackboards will come together. Basically, they're trying to create things that nobody can prove so that the, the, the things that they think that they have proved are validated. Black hole, dark energy, dark matter, no proof whatsoever. Anyway, I'll shut up now because I've been ranting. Well, that's what we love about you, Pete. <laughs> Get on a roll. <laughs> Anyway, back on topic, what I think you, you're saying, Pete, is really interesting because um, when we, we're, we're looking, say, back at the book and keeping into, into the theme of it, uh, Spensky's saying exactly the same thing about science. We've got all this stuff where they say this defines that, motion and energy, motion and energy. Mm. They're, they're given, yeah. they're known, but they're saying energy as it, you know, puts a force on matter and makes it move, and matter is the thing that is something that energy interacts with. So it's saying uh, energy is in terms of matter and matter in terms of energy, but they're two unknowns. They're saying X equals Y, Y equals X. Mm. It's like you can, you can explain anything 
when you use one unknown to describe another. I mm. kind of think of it as that that black hole. Yeah, yeah. Or that, or or that um, that phrase, you know, Daddy drinks because Mummy cries. You know, you can you can mm. prove anything because mm. <laughs> you've you've got that that um, unrefutable. That's actually a really good one. What's that? Daddy drinks because Mummy cries. Yeah, that's a really good one. That's that's a fabulous one. It's a point of view, isn't it? And that's all. That's mm. all one unknown to another is. It's a point of view. So what Aspensky is saying is that yes, all these things you can you can explain as to your point. If we want to, if we want to make a difference to how we live in this world, if we want to change um, how easy it is to clean the house, you invent a vacuum or if we want to get from point A to point B, we have a car or a faster car or a train, all those things, we can use science to understand how to make them, how how to build and how to uh, how they work. Science is great from that point of view. But if it comes down to saying we understand the things that that create this world, the things of themselves, what they really, really are, that's where he says they fall down. They They mm. take what they they're good at and extend it beyond their realm of speciality because they're using a method of uh, observation and they're using the five senses to do that observation. So everything he's saying, everything that we, and this is probably the point next I want to discuss, everything we experience in the world, we experience through our five senses. And so I see around me this, as you, to your point before, Pete, you know, the wall, my wall is beige. How wonderful for me! <laughs> it's a beige wall. Um, but uh, but uh, no comment. Said, no comment. But if I was in an alien body, if I didn't have these five senses of hearing, seeing, smelling, etc., I was in a different body. How would I experience that wall? Mm. I don't know. It would be a, a, a. I would experience it differently than what I am experiencing it with these five senses. So he's saying that what we what we see and what we hear and what we feel is just an interpretation of the world, but it doesn't ex- it doesn't tell us exactly what it is we are seeing, hearing, and believing, or, or sorry, uh, feeling in itself. It's just everything we take in, we take in through our senses, including science. Science does the same thing with its measurements. I so, do have one of my um, <laughs> one of my favorite lecturers at university. I remember it was a neuroscience course and the first lecture she just said you know science isn't here to tell you what it is full stop it's here to tell you what we currently know based on what we have observed and what we can see and I think that's really true Um, I think sometimes people do forget that and they want it to be yes it'll always always be this and it will never change but we always change the environment always changes so it's natural to accept that you know science will change over time um I want to go back if I can just quickly, Pete, because I found it really interesting um, when you said, you know, why do we need to know what the unknown is and and all those things? I think there is definitely a a benefit in it because when we relate it to our environments, to ourselves, to our consciousness, to our reality, I think it's a natural human instinct to sort of want to go, well, is there anything that can be better? And without that exploration and that sort of question, we don't know. And so that's why sort of science goes after these things, goes after these fields, goes after these questions to sort of see, is there something beneficial? You know, there are things like 
you know, we have medicines invented, we have treatments that are invented that help in, you know, health fields, we have cars and robots and all those things that without questioning the unknown of is it possible or how could it currently work based on where we are that we wouldn't have those benefits. I agree with that, and that's exactly where I mm. came to in the end. My my mm. posit was that do we need to pose the question of this this metaphysical question mm. of what is mm. knowable and what is not knowable? I say that mm. empirical science, stuff that you can do in a lab, you can replicate it, you can actually quantify it. Um, this is the stuff that, that actually is the stuff of our human experience, all of us collectively. And um, I have... I wonder where the value is in trying to even pose the question of are we reduced to this Descartes, this Cartesian um, idea of, well, we can only know that we think and, and that's all there is and is, is your thinking the same as mine? It does bring up another question, though, that of, well, if we if our experience is subjective, how do we have any commonality? How do I see your beige wall the same way that you do? Now, we can go into a philosophical argument and say that subjectively there will be differences in perception. But the fact of it is, if I say, um, go over there and pick that up, and you'll know exactly what I'm pointing at if you've got the sense of vision, and you, you walk over there and pick it up, and I will perceive that you've done exactly what I asked you to do. Um, we, we can't have this, this commonality without having taking some objective things as givens, which we do. How do we en masse when we have a um, subjective perception of what we what Ospensky, call, Ospensky calls the out, outside world, the world outside us, yet we have common experience of it? How does that happen if we don't have common connection between us at the mm -hmm. spiritual level, at the this level of perception and this level of the soul or whatever you want to call it you can call it the inner self or you can call it consciousness you can call it whatever you like if we don't have some commonality there if we don't have some connectivity how do we have a common experience of this outer world that we can't know and that's something that that Aspensky does talk about because he's i think mm. you know from from my experience growing up, my father was very into all sorts of different spiritual ideology and and looking at lots of, uh, I would have thought, weird and wonderful uh, concepts. And his catch cry was, you know, this world is an illusion. And, you know, I found nothing more annoying than to, you know, this world is an illusion because it bloody isn't. I sit there, I touch something, it's not an illusion. And... I think just to make this very clear, Spensky talks about illusion even in this first chapter to say that, that you know, this experience is an illusion but what he's not saying is it's not real. He's saying that what we perceive, if we think that that is the thing in itself, then that is an illusion. To think that we, the way we experience it is explaining it in itself that that's the illusion not that what we are experiencing is an illusion it's not like we're imagining this life we are living this life in this three-dimensional world and he goes through to explain why we uh why we need to create and and he talks about creating space and time in ourselves to explain the world because 
say everything is happening all, all at once in other dimensions, our poor brains, our intellect will never comprehend that. We'd be in the loony bin before, you know, sundown if, if we tried to see everything all at once. So our brains and our minds have to, have to categorize things. And as a human race, as all of us, we have to have a commonality, as you say, Pete. You know, it's no point in me having an experience that no one else gets. I, I again, would be looked upon as a stranger. As, as a human race, we have to have, and that's our consciousness as a collective, as a human race, we have a consciousness. We have the same bodies that have the same senses. So we have a commonality and we can understand a concept. We can understand, you know, if you have a feeling of our anger, because we've experienced anger, we can, we can, experience we, we understand what that experience is because of that commonality of how we how we all are experiencing this world with our bodies Absolutely. and our minds. And that was, sorry sorry didn't mean to interrupt Ali um no, 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 no that go, was a, go, go. a point that I really like too because that is something you know I really believe in is um you know the importance of empathy and empathy and sympathy and, and all those overlaps in the emotions and the ability to imagine how someone could feel in that situation based on our own experiences is something that's really, really important. Um, and, and going sort of off that, the understanding that someone else is just because they're experiencing something different to you doesn't mean it's not a reality. Um, you know, I've worked in, in mental health for a long time and in particular, I've worked with a lot of people who experience, um, you know, psychotic symptoms or schizophrenia, um, things along those lines. And one of the things that's really common, um, and there's great books and TED Talks, so I really encourage people to have a look at them, that they say is people don't understand that when you are experiencing those symptoms, it's not like having a thought. It's your senses are feeling it as though it's real. As Ali just hit the table then, that's how it feels. It feels real. So that experience for them, even though it's not real for us, it's absolutely real for them. And it's important, I think, to to talk about that. And that was something I really appreciated in this chapter was that acknowledgement and explanation. Well, what's schizophrenia? Because there are plenty of cultures in the world that revere what we mm. diagnose and put away as an illness. Mm. They revere schizophrenics and they call them the seers. Uh, and these are very special people in, in other cultures. Some of the cultures in your very country, for example, do this. Um, the the idea of, of reality, though, is that I find interesting is that we come back to what makes it workable for us. And where does that commonality come from? I mean, yes, we've all got these five senses, but we've all got an individual perception. Where, when we go back into the murk, when we crawled out of the primordial stew, did this did this happen to say, we're going to give you an individuated experience in the 3D world, but we're going to start off with certain givens that you will have commonalities in your experience enough that you can actually have an experience together in the 3D yeah. dimension. Something mm -hmm. has to start off as a given. So I'm saying that the abstract question of what can't, can, you know, what can we be? Uh, what can be a given and what can't be has an interesting point, but only when we realise where we have a starting point from. We are going to have to have some givens, and I think Uspensky is quite clear on that. That we do, at some point, even he, 
even he takes givens in this first chapter. He has to have a starting point. It's a great question, but I wouldn't want to spend my life looking at it because you will not have an answer ever. Mm. There are things that are unknowable from our point of view. And now when you said, you know, the human brain and the intellect, you do realize that the intellect and the human brain are constructs. They're, they're just as unreal as the brick wall and the illusion that your father said is here. They are constructs. Yeah. Intellect yeah. is a construct. I mean, I don't even have to say the brain. The brain is a physical thing. So, yes, of course, it's yeah. illusory. Um, but the intellect isn't. What is the intellect? There's a question that we, we, that we can ask. What is intellect? From my, from my point of view, the intellect is the uh, cognizing of, of the, the receptors of the senses into some uh, understanding. It's, it's, as you say, a construct. It takes the information in that, that we get through our senses and turns it into something. That's a table. Um, those tables are made of wood. All that is wood, even though they look different. It, and, and especially, this is you know sort of later on goes into more detail. Yeah, no, I was going to say I didn't want to come. I didn't want to go. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's not do any any spoilers. <laughs> but I want to just move on a little bit because we we are yeah, moving onto the same point. So so let's take it that he has started. That's his choice to start with two givens: our consciousness and the outside world. And this is where he builds his scaffold which, um, as said in the introduction, he will pull down around Chapter 8 and then reform mm. it. But let's, let's not get ahead of that. He hangs himself on it. He hangs himself on his <laughs> own scaffold intentionally. Intentionally, yes, yes, because it's a journey. We're going on a journey here. Yeah. And uh, let's, let's just keep that open mind. Okay, so he, he looks at two, two types of knowledge. He talks about the subjective and the objective world. So that he says the subjective world is in ourselves. It's our emotions, our uh, thoughts, our feelings. All those things are subjective. They're personal to us, um, although they can be common. Everyone can have the same sort of feelings, but ours are inside us. And then the objective world is the things outside of us. So are we in agreement that, that his definitions of subjective and objective observations uh, are accurate. I go back and forth with that I have since I I first read it. I, I sometimes agree and then sometimes I don't because even, you know, the things he says like, oh, well, these are the objective things that we sort of know around, I think, or realistically, if you really wanted to get down to it, you could absolutely argue and would be his argument for subjective. So even things like, you know, time which is an objective thing with the given it's but that was categorized by men we you know we were ones who said oh well now we want to say this is midnight this is 1 a.m 2 a.m 3 a.m 4 a.m and and this is how we're gonna run um and of course you know not everyone does that you know i can guarantee there are a lot of tribes out there who would have no idea how our version of time works so even though that would technically fit into his definition of what would be the objective world it would also sort of in a almost hypocritic oh, hypo, hypocrisy way. I can speak. I got an English degree. Hypocritical, <laughs> hypocritical, hypocritical is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> in you know, in that sense that well, that would actually be more subjective, but he would consider that objective. So I do go back and forth a lot with with so many different things, you know. But his definition is, uh, just sorry, Pete, you wanted to say something? 
No, 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 you, 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 you speak, you, you got him first. I'll, I'll, I'll just give the definition of what he says. Um, he says, that which we cognise subjectively, i.e. we recognise it directly within ourselves like feelings and emotions, that's the subjective, and the objective is that which we cognise objectively, we, re- we observe it outside of us like objects in the world. So in, from my reading of that, he's not calling time objective an object. It's object-like things, things, solid things um, mm. that we see in the world outside of us but maybe maybe you know t- he talks he talks about concepts of the concept of time mm. and i don't think that's an object i think that's subject subjective well well he says that we have to impose the idea of spatiality and time to the objects that we actually work with in the objective world otherwise they have no existence He's quite clear on it. I, I, I won't. I, I, it would take us longer than we've got for me to now find the actual wording. I'd, I'd have to read through it. But he does say this, and you know, we ha- he talks quite well, quite at length about the idea of us imposing this idea of spatiality and extent. Extension is the word he uses, but that means space. Uh, that that means existence in in terms of space, and obviously time. Uh, then has to has to come into it because you, you can't have those two attributes are not separate they they're not independent of each other they are absolutely connected space and time are connected in this sense so basically he's coming back to aspects of general and special relativity when he talks like that and and, and we we can't seem to get away from that anyway yeah. uh, when we're discussing objectivity of things outside us. This is this is now a model that we are trying to use to describe the world. And um, and I think the problem we have with it is that we're trying to describe things at the, the quantum level with um, with things in the Newtonian world, the, the world of gravity and, and the observable world. And so when we're looking at the trying to um, incorporate the abstract with what we with the observable we're having a real problem um, putting those together. Sometimes I think, and Ospensky, I'm absolutely, I feel sure, and I might be wrong, but I feel sure that he did have to accept this idea that unless we accept this, what what seems to be fake um, concept of extension and time, we cannot exist in a 3D environment. And so yeah, we have absolutely. to take that. We do have to take that as a given. And if we don't, we, we really are just sitting here as blobs of consciousness wondering what the hell is what. And I think his point is, he's, I think that is exactly right, but he's saying that we put those, they're parts of our um, deciphering of the world, space and time, as opposed to space and time being part of the objects we're observing. It's not. They don't. They don't have space and time. We give them space and time. Well, I'll just quick, very quickly say this is what he says because it's, it's, it was a good segue to get into this space and time concept, which he starts to introduce in chapter one. He says space and time are categories of intellect, i.e., properties which are ascribed by us to the external world. He said this is necessary for us because a thing having no definite extension in space, not occupying a certain part of space, or not lasting. Uh, a certain length of time does not exist for us at all. 
Um, also, all phenomena not in time, divorced from the idea of time, not taken in this fashion or that fashion from the standpoint of before, now or after, would proceed for us as though they were simultaneously moving among themselves and our weak intellect would not be able to distinguish one moment in the infinite variety. So absolutely what you're saying is, you know, again, it's like, well, the world might be whatever it is out there, but for us to understand it and work with it in this dimension, we have to give it space and time. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't mean to like be a, a bore on this one, but, again, we have to do that. Who's this we? Who is this great collective we? When did these, before language existed, you know, um, who are all these people that suddenly agreed? Because remember, this has to be an agreement for all of us as a human race to, to have these experiences that we can actually understand and relate to each other. There has to be an agreement of what do we mean by spatial extension and what do we mean by time? So do they exist? Did they exist for us to actually observe or do we impose them? And if we impose them, who imposed them? Which Who was the first um, humanoid creature that said, you know what? Hey, all of you, all of you around there sitting there like vegetables and blobbing about. Let's let's all agree on what I'm about to tell you. This is something called space and this is something called time. Oh, suddenly we can make sense of the world. Who did that? Where did that come from? How how collectively did that come about? Well, I don't think there was a forum that everyone sat down and discussed how we got <laughs> I know there wasn't. I'm saying well, that facetiously, but where did I it come from? Vote, then. <laughs> yeah, I think I think what is, and I think this is, the, it's a very good point that you're making because it is the crux of the whole thing. It's about the evolution of consciousness. So a, a being like a snail would have no concept of time. A snail just snails along. It, it, it doesn't interact with the world in the same way as we do. So as consciousness, and that's, again, a term that, has a very fuzzy meaning, but say awareness, if I talk about consciousness as awareness of, of our surroundings, for example, as that expands, as we we understand that, well, you know, snail says, oh, well, hang on a second, um, maybe that rain's coming from somewhere as opposed to, you know, one minute it's dry and the next minute I'm, I'm in a puddle. Maybe maybe there's something happening there and it, and it, it, it expands its its awareness of something other than what it's already aware of, then then it experiences the world a little differently. So maybe this collective we has been an evolutionary process that yeah. and that's what it's saying, the, the evolution of the human body is also accompanied with an evolution of the awareness of things, even, even for the way we interact with the world now compared to prehistoric man. Same body, same five senses, but... A very different experience of the world. Oh. You're taking um, us down a, a difficult road there. I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> but you're taking us down a real different, difficult road. When you talk about evolution, again, it's still a theory, and it's wildly, a, we, we're wildly able to disprove it. Wildly, the the idea of Darwinian evolution is easily disprovable. Even Darwin didn't accept it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let, let, me, yeah, let, me, yeah. uh, let me backtrack. Let me backtrack a little bit because my point wasn't about making a point about the evolution of the human body. It was about the evolution of consciousness. Is what I was mm -hmm. saying that that our awareness of uh, 
the awareness of ourselves and and what's outside of ourselves is what he's talking about when when we're talking about you know putting time and space into something that's a different level of consciousness than a snail has because we are more aware of things outside of ourselves uh, oh, than a snail who says so who says so a snail a snail can't do the things we we can do look a dog is quite aware uh, of the world around it, but it can't make a car. It doesn't have opposable thumbs and it doesn't have things like this. Um, who says that the snail isn't aware of things the way we are? What are we aware of? We're using well, language. We're using language now to describe things, and that, that brings something else into the equation. If we take language out of it, what do our five senses give us? The snail might not have five. It might have senses that we don't even know about. Oh, yeah, very true. And and it might see that, well, it will experience the world differently to us. And I guess, look, it's sort of from Aspensky's point of view, which is, you know, where we're, where we're discussing, he goes into this later on in the, in the book, you know, the first seven chapters, he talks about how we could presuppose that we, that the snail has a different level of consciousness and, and it's a quite a lengthy conversation. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into it now. No, we but, won't, we um, won't go yeah. into it, but I think that's a heck yeah. of a presupposition yeah. for somebody that's saying that starting his first chapter with the idea of what can we actually know? You know, there's so many presuppositions that we have to put into this particular argument that it almost negates the idea that we should question what we, the, the, the realm of the unknowable. Which is where I've been coming from all the all the way through this. So, from your point of view, Pete, you're not you're not even a little bit curious as to what there is outside of managing life in a three dimensional space. You know, I get up in the morning, I can have a get into my car. You know, all that sort of stuff. Well, hang on, but not from the point of view of of this the pseudo scientific inquiry that we've got here. Um, Understanding that is the, the a process of meditation, shamanic journeying. There are other ways of accessing consciousness that, that most scientists, and I mean most, some not, I, I'm not all, but most are terrified of the idea of, of even attempting. And consciousness is not something that you explore by looking at the outside world and relating it to how we relate with the outside world. You know, consciousness can't be explained or, or even explored in the context of science the way that we see empirical science. See, I do yeah. disagree with that quite a lot. <laughs> That's okay. Um, absolutely. You know, it's what it is. I think, again, it's always going to come down to what you consider consciousness. Um, and I think where we're coming from in this book, I mean, I'm going to try and relate it back to the book because otherwise we're going to go way off topic and we're going to be here for hours and hours. Um, but in terms of the book, looking at consciousness as a part of how we make sense of that objective world from our subjective point of view and our reality, coming from consciousness, that point of view, you, you can empirically, you know, monitor that. We have studies that have shown that, you know, brain cells and parts of the brain will activate at certain times. We have had a strength that they will activate and, and all of those things. And we can sort of see then how our behaviors change, how we change to our surroundings to sort of adapt to those, to make our surroundings happier. As you said at the beginning, you know, 
we do this stuff because we want it to change our, our everyday realities to make yeah. them better. Um, and we do mm -hmm. see that empirically with terms of things. I think where, where we're coming from in terms of what's going to work specifically for you in, in terms of how that relates to it all can be a different conversation. But in terms of the book, I think that's what he's sort of getting at is that, you know, looking at the unknown and accepting that and challenging some of it, but accepting that there are limits within it and looking at those. Well, that's my, and that's my point, that there are limits within it because there are things that we're just not going to be able to know and we're not going to be able to know um, probably ever because we were not meant to know. We've got, we've got so many issues and so many other questions. Spensky does go down that road uh, much later yeah. in the book. And, hmm. and the fact... Uh, you know, and I, I didn't want to get into Spensky's later mm. stuff here. Because I think what, you, what you're both saying, and I, I look, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky because, look, Chapter 1 does not deal with what consciousness is other than we are, we are aware of it. We are aware that there is a form of consciousness within us and we are aware that that is different from the world we, we have around us. And that's, that, that's simply all he's saying. But he, he does talk about Kant, and I think it's it's well worth we get on to Kant because most of the book is based on his um, his hypotheses or his philosophy. Um, so Kant was a philosopher. Well, he he, he proposed a, a, a hypothesis, and he was he he's of the era seventeen hundreds to early eighteen hundreds. So he was well before um, well before Respensky. And so what what Spensky says in chapter one is that there there are two poles of thinking, and we, so what we're talking about and what the book is talking about is the true causes of things. So what are things in themselves? That, that's what the whole book is, and and what it, and what he's basing it on is saying, well, science, as as you said, people, and, and and you did too, Steph, that science can measure things, science can look at things. And explain things and uh, predict things based on you know the way things are behaving and, and are replicatable, but that doesn't prove that what they're what they're telling us cuts down to the essence of it, mm. what it really is. Um, and so, to understand the true causes of things, what the, the true things are within themselves. So, we, if we say this is an illusion, it's real for us. But it's you know this table. It may not. It looks like a table to me, but maybe in another dimension, it's part of some great big wooden thing. I don't know. That's what he's saying. We don't know what what the thing is in itself. So he says there are two poles of thinking. You could say, well, let's let's have full negation of the causes of things happening in the outside world, and that we taking in from our senses, imagine everything in our heads. So we experience the world like we do virtual reality. You know, you put the headset on and suddenly everything we experience there, the brain just processes as if it's real. So that's one way of thinking about it. Let's let's accept everything as uh, only in our minds, only what our brains and our consciousness and whatever interpreted as senses, what our senses interpreted as. Then the other uh pole of thinking is to accept that everything that happens is outside of us and we, and we it is interacting with us so it's it's the opposite so everything the true causes of things are outside of us the first way is 
everything we imagine within ourselves. So the first one's imagination. Second one is we experience. So then he says, well, okay, the two are equally opposite poles of thinking for the same problem. And this is where he brings Kant in. And Kant says somewhere in the middle. So Kant proved that the causes of our sensations are in the outside world, but we cannot know these through any sensuous approach. That is that we experience phenomena through our senses. And then the other thing he says is that time and space are also things that we we create inside ourselves, inside our intellect, to make sense of the things around us. So, yes, there you go. That's my discussion on Kant. Over to you guys to clarify what I've just said. <laughs> Pete, do you want to go first this time? I thought I've been go- I thought I've been first every time because <laughs> oh, I, jump- I just jump I just jump in, don't I? Okay, look, um, Kant was writing at the same time of this um, the Great Age of Reason, the 18th century, and you know, and and at, the t- at that time there were other empirical philosophers, Locke, Berkeley, Hume, and it's particularly Berkeley that um, Kant seems to lock horns with in some ways and then agree with in other ways. Um, Barclay was the, of the, it was a reductionist and he, he was of the idea that we cannot know anything outside of ourselves whatsoever. I, I find Kant very dogmatic. I find that he, he is somebody that writes from the, the point of view that what he's saying is the absolute truth. And if you, if you read his ethical philosophy as well, you know, he, he, he is absolutely in this way. But, uh, uh, however, I think, you know, that there are certainly good points to make. And I, I would still come back to what a lot of these people are doing is saying, well, how, how do we make sense of the world around us if we can't know it? I think everybody's trying to find a, a common ground from where we can actually move forward. Once the question's been posed in the, in the mind of, of somebody, though, the question, the question is always going to be investigated, isn't it? And I found that certainly going back, as, as, by the way, just so that we know that I, I do have a, a double uh, in philosophy and classics. So philosophy is something I know uh, and have studied. It, it, when you say no, how can you ever know it? That all it is is posing questions that none of us seem able to answer. But, uh, you know, going back like this, these are these are questions that have been asked time and time and time again. And we still here we are in the 21st century, still unable to answer them. I, and we can go around in circles with them. I, I think that sometimes we, we can look at parts of them and we can agree with them, but not everybody agrees with the same parts when we're talking about questions like this. So it can become very circular. Kant, I don't know, I, 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 I've studied Kant. Um, if you try to read his his books, which are translated into English, you're going to find them really dense, really difficult to to go through. Um, and very few people tend to read the whole damn thing. But you can get praises of them and you can get people that work them through and you can get the ideas. Uspensky is great because he just pulls out the ideas that he wants and we can look at those. I, I'm not a fan of Kant, so I'm not going to talk too much on it, on him, other than to say that we can have this argument about reductionism and go around in circles again and again and again. I, I like the way that Spensky moves it on. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. And I think the thing is, he, the point he makes about Kant 
it may not be in this chapter, is Kant never, he can't just propose the question. He never answered the question. So, you know, yeah. So, so he's, so he uses Kant from the point of view and throughout his whole book to refer to this is the question Kant put forward. Kant has not. Can I just uh, say one more thing though there? Because Kant does do that. Um, However, Kant does this in a way that we would nowadays call passive aggressive. He poses the question, but the way that he poses it, you get absolutely the idea of what he thinks the answer is. Even though he says, I don't honestly know, but you really do come away with the idea that, oh, yes, he damn well does, and you'd better accept his, his belief. You read him and see. I think he, I think Uspensky is kind to them, and I think Uspensky is able to use him as a springboard and a platform to move on, which he does in subsequent chapters. I agree with you there, Steph. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I do agree with that. I think, um, yeah, I, I haven't done much on Kant. I've, I've only read a few things. Um, he's not my favorite. <laughs> um, Nor mine. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. It does, again, come back to that same thing with the chapter of, of we're trying to make sense of the world and, and we need those givens and stuff. I think the thing I really got out of chapter one was this idea that there may not be an answer, but that doesn't mean the question's not valid. And I agree with I that. Yeah, that's it. I, it doesn't mean it's not worth. I'd, I'd rather ride motorbikes and drive fast cars, though, because I'll leave somebody else to do to ask that question. <laughs> that question, because I like the stuff that I like the stuff in Spensky where we move on. And once yeah. we've decided that we we are we are, I think what he does do in the end. I mean, if we boil it down, is we're going to have to accept something. We are going to have to accept something, or we can't have inquiry. We have yeah. to have we have to have a starting point, and and I. And I like his starting point. I like Aspensky's starting point. Let me let me ask this question of you, Pete. I'm getting the impression that you challenge Aspensky, but you still liked his book. Am I right? <laughs> Simply or, because, I mean, yeah. No, I mean, I, I I only challenge the idea of of the question, that initial question, because I think I think you could deal with it in in a in a paragraph and say, look, there's going to be stuff that we don't know. So why don't we start from here? Then I'll explain why I'd like us to start from this point. Other people might want to start from another point, but I'm going to start from this point and let's move on. And we have, we all of us have to have some starting point or as Steph has said earlier, we have no empirical science. We don't get these fabulous inventions that like progress us through our enjoyment of the, of this 3D experience. You know, with, without, without somebody agreeing a starting point. And I like Aspensky's starting point. Yeah, me too. And, and uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And again, it's a journey, and I think it's a rollicking good journey. I, well, this book just yeah. blows my mind. Uh, and whether I agree with it or not is irrelevant uh, for me. It's irrelevant because yeah. hmm. it's made me think differently. Yeah, which I find exciting. That's it's just it's just the journey of of thinking differently. And and yeah, there is no answer. But hmm. Do you know, you you what you'd really enjoy. Um, if you find that you have the time, reading the books of Locke, Barclay, and Hume, I'll send you links. They are Thank they you. are accessible much more than Kant, mm. uh, and they expand on a lot of the work that Spensky does in Tertium as well. And you can see where he's come from. These will have been his platform. He was well aware mm. of Locke, Barclay, and Hume without a shadow of a doubt because he mentions them. 
Exactly. So, so yeah. So I think, I think to wrap up, uh, I think Spensky's made a really good start. He said, "Here's the starting point. If we want to understand things in themselves, what things really are, we have to say we know nothing and start from some givens. We can't say yeah. we can't start from nothing, but we could. So we have to, and, we, and he's chosen for his point of view. His two givens. We have consciousness, and we have a we have an observable world the around outside, us. Yeah. 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 I like and and honestly, without those, I, I I mean I don't know if you feel the same step, but I I don't mm. think that we can actually have have an existence if we don't take those as givens, whether no, whether they're true or not. We we gotta have them. Absolutely, and and again, that is something that's discussed quite broadly. Is you know how what what are we without consciousness? What are things without consciousness? As we sort of spoke about at the beginning, um, and I agree. I really enjoyed the first chapter. I enjoyed the whole book. I. I really did. I think it's really important too to have that idea that look, you know, to answer these questions, even think about them, we've got to make those starting points. And and he's given us two really great ones. Whether you disagree or agree with them, they're still really great mm. to start with. So I really enjoy. They are. Them. Yeah, mm. they allow us to have empirical science, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where he's starting. And so he now builds on this. So he's going right. Let's start here. We've got these concepts, great, let's move on. And so chapter two is going to start building on this, this scaffold that he that he builds and then tears down later on to rebuild. So so it's a journey. It's a as he says, let's let's reason together. Fantastic. So thank you again and uh, I look forward to your company for chapter two yeah. and uh, be there. enjoy the rest of your, your day. <laughs> Bye guys. Thank you guys Bye. so much. Bye. Bye-bye.